Let us pray. Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word, and give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. The scripture lesson uh, in the Old Testament is found in the book of Isaiah, chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all all faces, and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him so that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The word of the Lord. Our New Testament lesson this morning comes from the book of Revelation, the 21st chapter, verses 1 through 7. I don't know the page number, but it's at the very end. Uh, It's very close to the end. So listen now for the word of God to the church this morning. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A few years ago, I was in the hospital visiting a church member who was recuperating from surgery. It's one of those times in the hospital when every room seemed to be filled, and uh, so the only recovery room, the only room that they could find for this 
uh, person to recover in after his surgery was actually on the recovery on the uh, pediatric ward on the on the children's floor. Now, as I was about to enter into his room, I heard a little child crying just down the hall. It's amazing what you can hear in the cry of a child. You can sense almost immediately how old the child is. And I could tell that this cry was not from a newborn baby, but certainly not a very old baby, a baby that was, I guessed, about less than a year old, maybe. I was pretty sure that this baby was in physical pain, but there seemed to be a lot more to it than that. There seemed to be a deeper pain, fear, loneliness, a sense of being completely alone and defenseless in a world that was not safe. In a child that young, a cry can speak volumes, and what it speaks is always authentic and true. I lingered there in the hall as that cry washed over me, and then my imagination began to race. I wondered what was happening to that child in that moment. What awful procedure may she be having to endure at such a tender age? I wondered whether she had anyone with her. So many people in hospitals suffer through pain alone, and I hoped she was not. I prayed that someone was with her, someone who loved her, who could hold her in that moment. But I knew that in this world that it was far from certain. That little cry came from a tiny infant, but its source seemed to be much older and much more cosmic than that. That little cry came from a deep darkness that was there even before the foundations of the world were laid. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, we read that the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind swept over the face of the waters. From the very beginning, the sea has represented the power of chaos. It symbolizes in the Bible pretty much any power that resists, contests, or contradicts the loving rule of God. It's the force that wiped out everyone but Noah's family, the storm that nearly killed Jonah, the frothy waves that struck fear in the hearts of the disciples, the darkness where the ancient beast Leviathan is said to lurk without challenge. The psalmist wrote that when the waters first saw God, that the very deep trembled, that the waters were afraid. And after the words, let there be light, God's first order of business was to tame the sea. And God's path to us and to our salvation had to pass first through the mighty waters. And we read in Scripture that God's power would not be deterred. The sea had no choice but to submit to the power of God. So the sea was contained and organized and even given some boundaries, but the sea did not go away. The dark chaos remained and was always there, and it remains here. 
It lives on in the power of sin. It lives wherever people are vulnerable, wherever they are abused or mistreated, wherever they are mocked or ridiculed, wherever they are forced to flee oppressors or falling bombs. It lives in the mails, where evil still lurks in paper packages wrapped with hate and vengeful rage. It lives in hospitals where pain still terrifies children, where disease still brings heartbreak, where frightening diagnoses still knock strong people and families to their knees. It lives in divisive rhetoric and hateful speech that targets people for the color of their skin or the faith they choose to practice or the people they choose to love. And its most impregnable fortress, the place where the enduring power of the sea is at its strongest and most obvious, is death. The Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh stands this morning as a powerful witness that the sea still raises its most fearful fury in the undeniable power of death which scripture recognizes as the last enemy to be destroyed. So the book of Revelation takes this image, this history, this image of the sea as chaos and uses it to unveil the ultimate goals and purposes of God. Early on in the book, John of Patmos, that's who is credited with with writing the book of Revelation. These are his visions. He's given a powerful vision when the door of heaven, a little window into heaven, is open to him. And he gazes through that window to see a majestic central throne. It's gleaming. It's wrapped with this majestic um, emerald rainbow. And around that central throne are 24 smaller thrones. These are the seats of elders who have made it through their tribulations and who are now clothed in white robes and crowns. And surrounding all of this, like a big concentric circle, is the sea. Even in heaven, the sea is there. Here, that close to the presence of God, the sea is completely smooth. Scripture describes it, it's like a sea of glass, like crystal. There's not a ripple on it, but it's still a barrier. In the vision of John of Patmos, the sea still stands between us and God, threatening our access to the throne. Now, I haven't had many of these experiences in my life yet because I haven't spent that much time on boats. Many of you have. But I was lucky enough last Saturday to have the blessing of being out on the waterway before the sun peeked out over the horizon. And as we glided through the marsh, that water was as smooth as glass. There were no bumps There were no jostlings, just the comfortable whir of the motor and the warm wind on our faces. And as the sun began to break over Deweese Island, an undeniable sense 
of the beauty and peace of God's creation fell upon me. That's the kind of sea that I imagine from John's vision of God's throne. Potential danger and chaos have been calmed by God, and God's peace and order is dominant, but the final victory does not seem to have been won, for the sea is still there and still exists. After I'd finished my visit with that member of the church who had had surgery, it was obvious to me he was fine, he was recovering well, he had plenty of family around him. So I said goodbye and I went back out into the hall and I couldn't help myself, but I ventured down the hall toward the place where I had heard that plaintive, plaintive cry before. And the crying had stopped now. And as I walked a little closer, I even noticed that the door was open and I couldn't help but walk by and just kind of peer in. And it turns out I had been right. That child was about 12 months old at most. She was being held by her mother resting with her head on her mother's chest, and she was asleep. For the moment, she was safe and she was secure. For the moment, the waters of her world were glassy and calm, but I knew they probably wouldn't stay that way for long. She was still in the hospital. She was still sick, and I knew that something would happen soon that would probably make her cry again. And that's what it means, I think, for John's vision to reflect that the sea, even around the throne of God, was still there. Because even when we're at peace, that sea laps at our feet. It lurks and it waits. It's still there as a potential barrier between us and the loving presence of God. And that brings us to the amazingly good news of Revelation 21, the passage that we read this morning. That good news is a detail that if we're not paying close attention or listening closely, we might not miss. John is given, toward the end of the book of Revelation, another heavenly vision. And this time the vision is much more expansive. It's not just a glance through the window. He sees a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. It had not just been calmed. It had not just been bound or subdued temporarily. It was gone. Everything that could possibly stand between us and God had been removed as if it never existed in the first place. And that's why this passage is one of my very favorites for funerals. When we celebrate the resurrection of someone we have loved and lost, we celebrate the fact that for them, the sea is no more. There's no longer anything that stands between them and the loving presence of God, for even the last enemy has been defeated. The threat of death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. It's really, I think, the core and essence of the good news. Good news that in just a few moments we will celebrate with the ringing of a bell that will be both mournful and hopeful. On this side of death, 
we can't help but still wrestle with the presence of the sea. Sometimes our world is calm and we're able to experience the gift of peace that is only God's to give. But at other times we may feel buffeted by the waves of life or even fear that we are being overwhelmed and pulled by circumstances beyond our control down under the surface and into the darkness. The poem William Wordsworth wrote eloquently about this aspect of the human condition. During his lifetime, he spent a great deal of time on the Isle of Man in Great Britain. And there he often admired the scene of an old Viking castle that was there by the sea. And despite their location on an exposed outcropping, those rocky ruins always seemed to him to be completely at peace, as if they were bathed in soft light beneath blue skies and calm winds with glassy seas around them. And he would later write about those Elysian memories that he had of that castle in a poem that he called Nature and the Poet. I was thy neighbor once, thou rugged pile. For summer weeks I dwelt in sight of thee, I saw thee every day. All the while thy form was sleeping on a glassy sea. How perfect was the calm. It seemed no sleep, no mood, which season takes away or brings. I could have fancied that the mighty deep was even the gentlest of all gentle things. But then something happened in Wordsworth's life. In 1805, his brother John was lost at sea when the ship he was sailing went down in a violent gale. Wordsworth had already lost people close to him, people very precious to him. His mother had died when he was just eight years old. His father, who was rarely present, died when he was still in grammar school just a few years later. And soon after this latest tragedy, the poet would lose two of his children in the very same year. Never again would anyone need to explain to William Wordsworth that the last enemy to be destroyed, the one so ready, willing, and able to crush our spirits and annihilate our peace, was death. Never again would he imagine the mighty deep to be the gentlest of all gentle things. Never again would he see that rocky fortress free from buffeting waves and dark skies because even if the day happened to be clear, for him the possibility of the storm would always be present and close at hand. In that poem he continued, A power is gone which nothing can restore. A deep distress hath humanized my soul not for a moment could I now behold a smiling sea and be what I have been. The feeling of my loss will ne'er be old, this which I know I speak with mind serene. This is what I think it means for the sea to always be there. Even when things are calm, life has a way of reminding us that it might not be that way for long. But fortunately for us, part of the blessing of being made in the image of God is that God has implanted within us just a little bit of the heart of his poetry.
And even in the storms of life, we can imagine peace. Even in the face of death, we're given a glimpse into heaven. And William Wordsworth, like John of Patmos, opens this door and window for us. For despite all that he had suffered, Wordsworth closed his poem with hope. These are the final words of his own ode to peace and turmoil, calm and storm, life and death. Welcome, fortitude, and patient cheer, and frequent sights of what is to be born. Such sights or worse as are before me here. Not without hope, we suffer and we mourn. We remember this morning those people in our hearts and in this congregation whom we have loved and lost and have now entered the church triumphant. And even as we celebrate the fact that every tear has been wiped away from their eyes, that for them mourning and crying and pain will be no more, that for them the sea is no more, we can also reflect upon the periods of calm and storm in our own lives and be reassured by the promise of the one seated on the throne who is making all things new. Someday for us, as well as those whom we love, the sea, the collection of anything and everything that might stand between us and the loving peace and presence of God will be no more. On that day, there will be no pain, no struggle, no tears, and death will have been swallowed up in victory. So welcome fortitude and patient cheer and frequent sights of what is to be born, such sights as we have seen this week, or worse, as are before us here. Not without hope do we suffer and mourn. Not without hope do we suffer and mourn. Thanks be to God. Amen.